WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the creator of the upcoming Vault Comics series, The Nasty, John Lees. Welcome back, John. Oh, glad to be here. Um, nice to have a chat again. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, how was how was your weekend? You know, did 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 you go out to get to see the John Wick Four? I actually did go out to see John Wick Four. Um, so, got my tickets for no tonight. Spoilers got for my, my tickets keep, for tonight. I'll keep spoilers to the absolute minimum. I'll just say like the bit where like he shoots someone is really good. <laughs> All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my goal is finish recording, rewatch three, and then go right to see four. That that yeah, is my plan like, for the yeah. afternoon. Yeah. Actually, when I was like sitting in the at the cinema, like waiting to go in, I was talking to my friend and like they were like, How did the last one end? And it turned out that the last one they'd seen was part two and they hadn't seen part three. So I had to like <laughs> give like a kind of like cliff note says explanation of like the entirety of part three in the space of like a minute. <laughs> I am still four John Wicks and ten fast and the furious is behind. <laughs> Oh, John, John, John Wick's great. I, I, to be honest, I know what you mean. Like, I've not watched much Fast and the Furious to this day. I've only ever seen one Fast and the Furious movie. I saw Fast Five, I think it was the first one with the Rock in it. Okay, it was on okay. TV one of these days, and I thought, like, you know, I'll give it a watch. And I thought, this must be what it's like to be like someone like who's never watched a comic book movie, like coming in and watching like Avengers Infinity War or something like that. <laughs> like, you know, like, oh, this like war. Like, I have no idea what's going on, but it seemed like they're having a good time. <laughs> that is a great description. <laughs> yeah, and of course, if you asked Vin Diesel, the rock is Thanos. So there, yeah, there yeah, you of go. course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't the latest thing was he said like that he sees like the Lord of Fast and the Furious as being like a modern day Lord of the Rings or something like this? <laughs> Lord of the Hubcats. Ah! <laughs> we're not just yes. a fellowship, I, we're family. I, I love this. I love this. You know, there's that one scene, and I don't know if it's eight or nine, where it's just raining cars, and that's just, you know, it's yeah. the same as the Battle of Helm's Deep. Yeah. <laughs> one car um, can they rule they're in space now, the... aren't they? Are they like, was that last movie they went to space? Apparently. Yeah. I, I am also, a, the only one I've seen is the spinoff, the, the Hobbs and Shaw, because yeah. Idris Elba, and it's like, okay, I'll see pretty much anything with Idris Elba, so. Yeah, 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 that sounds fair. <laughs> uh, but the funny thing is, like, wasn't the first movie about, like, stealing DVDs or something? Like, you know? <laughs> oh, oh, my God, it was like, it was TV, DVD, or, uh, no, oh, God damn, it was like TV, DVD, or TV, VCR combos. VCR combos, like VCR. This was that all. things escalate. One day, stealing combination TV, VCRs, and the next year... <laughs> piloting cars in space it's a slippery slope <laughs> pretty sure that's how struck too. Space pilots. <laughs> jesus christ uh <laughs> all right so so let's 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 uh cue a little bit closer to the theme of this episode uh, i think we should just do a fast and the furious podcast it'd be great <laughs> you know <laughs> for people who've never seen fast and the furious movies talking about fast and the furious i you know matt has threatened to do that I think, <laughs> at some point i've yeah. thought about it so <laughs> <laughs> oh boy but uh Let's let's do let's break the ice this way now. Uh, what is what is officially the nastiest thing you've ever rented from a video store? Oh, um, 
Right, I don't know, like, it's a, that's quite a tough question, um, because I'm not sure, like, like probably there's nastier movies that didn't feel nasty to me at the time, but one of the most vivid memories of a video store right now that had an impact on me, um, I think I've told this story in some version before, so if you've heard this before, I apologise, but actually, I don't really apologise, get used to it, <laughs> I thought I'd repeat myself, um, but um, it was House 3, um, and I must have been about four or five years old, and I was watching the family had rented like house three, and I was sitting watching this movie. And it's the scene where kind of like the serial killer is in death row, and like you know, and like Lance Henriksen plays the cop, and like he goes to watch the execution, and like the serial killer's like, you know, this won't stop me, I'll come back and get you, uh, you know. And then like, so he gets strapped down to the chair, like you know, and he's like ready to get electrocuted for the you know, like get the execution, and then they electrocute him, he's like, blah, 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 blah. and you know, and then he dies. And then they go to feel his pulse, and he kind of looks up and goes, "Give me some more," you know. And then, like, you know, so he starts like electrocuting him some more, and then like his skin starts like bubbling and like you know popping, and, and his face starts melting. He's ah, and then and then he pulls himself free from the straps just as his head bursts into flames, and he starts walking like towards the assembled crowd and points towards Hans Henderson. He's like, you know, you, I'll come back for you, and then like he just collapses to the ground, and that's you know, and they get the fire extinguishers out and go. And spray him off, like, and he saw, and I don't know. This scene happened, and then, like, I think it was my mum and my cousin that were watching this at the time. Both turned around to me because I hadn't said anything about it. And apparently, I was just like silent, totally ashen, like terrified about what I just watched, like in horror, you know. And so, and then the second, like, one of them had to touch me, I just started screaming. Um, so that's a so like, this haunted me for many years um, until finally I found that clip again on YouTube and I was like, this is actually very cheesy and very dumb. But <laughs> I thought this was like you know, the height of terror, the height of cinematic sophistication and suspense. But yeah, that was one that had a big impact on me as being a particularly nasty movie for my video rental days. And now we know you have a pretty good Lance Henriksen impression. <laughs> 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 Oh boy. But yeah, so we we brought that up to bring this up. You know, you're here to talk about The Nasty, which is your new vault series with uh, artists uh, George Camadeus and Adam Cahoon, letterer Jim Campbell. Issue number one is out April 5th as of this recording. Uh, Matt, paint a picture with your words, won't you? Scotland, 1994. 18-year-old Thumper Connell still has an imaginary friend the masked killer from his favorite slasher film. Thumper is obsessed with horror, and always has been. He fills his time with scary VHS rentals and hanging out with his fellow fans, the Murder Club. But everything changes when his local video shop acquires one of the notorious films known as Video Nasties. Films so scary, they're the target of the British Moral Decency League's crusade to ban and burn. But it's only a movie. Right? It's all just imaginary, isn't it? I couldn't have said the better myself. That was <laughs> I'm just gonna record that. I'm gonna carry that picture around with me every time I do other interviews and I just play that. Um when they ask me what the book's about. Feel free. There there you go. I mean I'm I just, imagine I'm, I'm just so got these luxurious silken American tones all of a sudden. To <laughs> <laughs> be honest. Yeah, just lip sync over it. That's that's perfect. <laughs> Uh, but uh, what is what is the origin of this project? You know, how far back does this go for you? Oh, this goes way back. Um, like 
on some level, I could probably say I, tr- I could trace the origins of this back to like maybe the better part of a decade ago, like maybe twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, maybe. Um, when it was, um, actually maybe even earlier, maybe in twenty twelve. Because I go to Glasgow Fright Fest every year, and then one year they had a big documentary on the video nasties, which was an actual thing in the UK, a big moral panic. Um, that I had an awareness of and an interest in from a young age because um, I remember as a young kid, I got a, for Christmas one year, a book about the video nasties, like the guide to the video nasties. So I was aware of it, but this was a really fascinating documentary that showed the kind of whole story of the moral panic behind it and hysteria, and I thought it was quite fascinating. And I remember at that time, um, I think Facebook Memories flagged this up actually the day that I saw that movie the first thing I wrote was I would love to tell a story about the video nasties one day and then it took all this time to do that and there was a long time a long period of gestation like the title The Nasty has been with me for a long time Um, I remember at one point I was developing a kind of more serious horror type idea it was like you know reminiscent of it and it was going to be quite grim and dark and but still kind of like, like lots of kids and bikes running, running around and this kind of stuff and then, like, Stranger Things came out, and I thought, no, I better sit in this for a few years because everyone will think I'm just ripping off Stranger Things. So I left it for a while. And then when I came back to the idea, it took on a whole different tone. It became this kind of more horror comedy type thing with kind of coming-of-age elements and the kind of, like, the whole story about, like, a group of friends coming together to make a movie. Um, That kind of element kind of came in later on. And that version of the story's been around several years Um. And I think I first talked to Vault about this, like in like 2019. Then obviously the pandemic happened and that put everything on hold for a couple of years, you know. Mm. And then like, you know, um, so it's been a long path to get here. But yeah, this has been something in Jeff Jason for some time. But honestly, you could go back even further than that and say this is like I've been telling this story in some form for my whole life because like in a lot of ways, like Thumper is me. Like in the first issue, there's like the scene of like Thumper as a young kid walking down Rutherford Main Street with his mum going like, you know, um, five shops to go to the video shop, four shops to go, three shops to go. That was me, like, literally walking down Rutherford Main Street because I grew up in Rutherford. Um, so that was like me, but and it wasn't Monster Dome Video, it was Video World for me. And that was where I kind of like first forged my love of movies and my love of horror because like, I lived in Rutherford Main Street and it was like a five minute walk straight line down to video shop sometimes i go with my mum sometimes i'd go myself um and let's just say that the video shop owners were very permissive so like this kid about maybe four or five years old we would walk down to the video shop and come home with like, a copy of, like peter pan and maniac cop three badge of silence or something like that you know <laughs> <laughs> so i mean for me that was like you know like, my, my great like my hobby like whenever i had like you know time off or the weekends or um after school whatever or before school even like when i was younger it was like you know just like exploring all these covers and the gooier and nastier the cover was and what i wanted to see the movie um so that was kind of like my introduction to that world now you know obviously it's a lost world now like you know i go on google and i can't even find pictures of video world anymore like it only exists in my memory now um Mm. which is weird that something from the 1990s could just like disappear but that's the way things are because no one had phones in their cameras or you know cameras in their phones back then they were Um, walking around the video shop with a kodak fun saver yeah uh, exactly so that's all just gone now so this was kind of like my this like you know story the nasties kind of like my attempt to although thumper's older than me i was only a little kid in the 90s thumper's already a teenager in the 90s but it's kind of like my attempt to capture a kind of picture postcard of like you know that lost world and you know something that was just like so formative for me so uh, is this is this like a miniseries? Do you have like a finite 
number of of issues for this or yeah like it's um the whole thing's written already it's you know a complete series with like beginning middle and end um I do, obviously if everyone loves it and they say let's keep on doing more you know i wouldn't object to thinking up more stories but it does have <laughs> an ending and the, one of the cool things about working with vault was like when i originally pitched this story i originally kind of like planned this story it was like a tight six issues like you know it was six issues long but it was a lot of story in those six six issues it was really quite ambitious to try and get through it all now I remember thinking when I sent the pitch to Vault, I was like, oh no, I really hope that they go for six issues. They're not going to try and cut us down to five or four because I could barely get this done in six. There's no way I could do it in less. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, like, you know, Vault came back and said, we really love this outline, but the only thing we're not sure about is the number of issues. And I was like, oh no, what are they going to say? And he says, can we actually make it more issues? Can we make it eight? <laughs> and I was like, yes, you know, <laughs> I think I can do that. Um, So yeah, it's an eight issue series, which is really exciting to have that kind of like level of space to let the story on fold um so yeah so that's what it's going to be i, I can you call it an issues a maxi series uh, i think i'm going to call it that but that's a maxi series <laughs> i'll allow it <laughs> so uh you know one of the first things i noticed is it, the, the covers for this series uh rip you know there's a lot of varying covers for the first issue what was it like to see this many interpretations of of the sick thoughts inside your head <laughs> well that's, that's one of the really cool things again like Vault are just great like you know in terms of I've had variant covers before for books maybe like one or two variants for a book but mm-hmm. this level of variance this level of support and the publisher getting behind you is just really exciting and I remember at the time when we were first talking about covers like you know they'd said to me like what's your wish list for like artists you'd like to see doing a cover and I, and I rattled off a few options. I think at the time I'd said Ian Laurie, who I did, and then Emily was gone with many years ago. I'd said him. Um, I'd said Robert Wilson the Fourth, um, who I think is a really good artist. Um, and I'd said my pie in the sky dream choice. I don't think you'll be able to get them, you know, because I have no means of communicating with them. But if you could get like Max Saren, because Giant Days is one of my favorite comics, and Giant Days more than any other comic is an inspiration for the nasty, like, you know, even though it doesn't seem like it because the subject matters are very different. But like, you know, that was totally like my big inspiration, you know, and it, and all three of them he got and more. Um and like, you know, so yeah, it was great seeing all these different variations and seeing all the buzz and like, I got my comp copies in and I was able to just lay out this kind of gallery of covers for all these amazing artists and just cool, you know, to know that they all have read this book or are aware of it and have contributed their, you know, sort of visual stamp on it. Mm-hmm. Now, I should also mention Sally Cantino, who's doing our D covers for the whole run. Um, So I'm a big fan of Sally's. So the fact that we've not just got her for this issue, but every issue is super exciting. Absolutely. I, I will yeah. tell you like the, the Max Saren cover, I stopped and I and like they have such a distinctive style too. And I was like, oh my god, is that Max Saren? <laughs> yeah. That's what I was pretty much like when I first saw the cover. <laughs> now I absolutely need Esther DeGroot hanging out at the video store. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I just Thanks for having me. That'd be great pals, you know. <laughs> yeah. Just bumper talking to Ed Gemmel for uh for a spell. <laughs> I think now that you mentioned Dumper has a bit of an Ed haircut. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, I wanted to get into this because this was a very educational research weekend for me. You know, uh, in America in the 1980s, we had, you know, Tipper Gore and the Parents Music Resource Center, which uh, ultimately resulted in parental advisory stickers being affixed to, to cassettes and CDs. But, you know, in the UK around this period and, and you know, 
you know this, but I'm you know talking to the listeners. You know, you all had the video recordings act 1984 and this list of of video nasties that was basically a government backed list of some of the grisliest, most obscene horror movies around. You know, cool shit. And you know, <laughs> first of all, it's nice to know that moral panics aren't just an American thing. You know. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing, like, it's like, you had, I, I kind of look at it as like, the video nasties moral panic is like the left hand companion to, like, the satanic panic in the right yeah. hand in America, like, you know, it's the same, you know, same time, same general arguments of like, you know, or oh, think of our children's minds being corrupted, you know, and you know, the same outcome in a lot of ways, people being demonized, people being like, you know, and essentially, like, with the video nasties moral panic, it was... Like, this was like Thatcher's Britain, like a conservative government, like, you know, the unions had been dismantled, essentially, um, and things weren't magically getting better, like, the country was in a bad state, and we needed something to blame on, we couldn't blame the government, we couldn't blame, like, you know, political shortcomings, so let's find a boogeyman to blame it all on. So it all started with, like, Mary Whitehouse, who was this kind of right-wing campaigner, this housewife turned, you know, political pundit and, like, columnist, who started talking things. She coined the term the video nasties and was all about, like, you know, these sick videotapes and movies that were, like, you know, polluting children's minds and were making people commit crimes and all this stuff. And the right-wing press seized on that, and then they then, from there... The government seized on it too and like you know it became something that was easy to kind of like point and say this is what's wrong and so like it was an easy vote getter amongst like right-wing constituents to say we're stamping down on the video nasties and we're like you know pardon me we're gonna like charge anyone who sells these movies or anyone who distributes these movies with obscenity it was essentially what it was was a lot of small business owners who had opened like mom and pop stores um like selling videos that, like, had no ability to kind of, like, or no resources to fight back these, like, spurious legal claims. They just had to take the criminal charges. It was all just red meat for the base. Um, And the thing that really angers me, I could talk about this for hours and hours, but the thing that really angers me about this is that the Conservative Party, or the Tories, like, as I'm known here in the UK, um, they had big, massive viewing parties of the video nasties. They would like they, they had the biggest supply of like seized banned tapes was in Westminster because they had all these tapes and it what and they did this whole like screenings and all the MPs would come and they'd watch them and they'd hoot and they'd holler and they'd laugh and they'd gasp and go, Oh my god. And then they go, Well, we can handle that because we're sophisticated, intelligent people, but all those plebs and the commoners out there, it would warp their minds. We have to ban this so they can't see what we've just watched because we're more capable of like handling this than these simpletons. So let's, you know, ban it. And like, and that's what really makes me really angry. It was fine for them to watch, but they could then Mm -hmm. say, well, people can't watch because they're too stupid, they're too poor. Like, they they become criminals if they see stuff like this. And like, one of these one of these things that is always going to be timely. Like that was the moral panic of the day. Um, in the nineteen eighties, it was like um videotape horror movies, or in the US, it was like heavy metal or Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. in the nineteen nineties, it was Marilyn Manson or Slipknot, or it was like um video games. You know, and like and now nowadays, it's like you know books with gay people in them, like you know, or like you know, it's like it's always going to come back or it's like drag shows like you know it's always going to be like something that people are going to well but it's always going to be a moral panic or something that can go well I need some new votes so let's get people scared and angry and paranoid and still like find some outsider to point the finger at and it's always going to be something that works with that type of people so it's just the same hatred and the same like bigotry and prejudice it's just getting like repackaged and recycled for new generations over and over again so I wish it wasn't so timely but sadly it is 
these these things always come back and and now i'm just picturing this room of stuffed shirts watching evil dead and not really even being able to appreciate it <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> yeah, evil dead was called the number one nasty and like actually funny enough that was a big major trailblazer and like start to reverse the course of it because evil dead unlike a lot of the smaller fish they fought that they went to court like the, the distributors came and what actually happened is like something sam raimi actually flew to the uk he's like i'll, I'll testify and then like the judge you know refused to accept his testimony because he said it wasn't relevant but what I, this is like something straight out of hollywood movie what actually happened was that is that in a kind of major gambit um but what like this massive like it was like a, what do you call it a case trial or a precedent trial which was going to be happening mm. and the distributor said we're sick of this we brought evil dead with us we will show the movie to the jury and if the jury think this is obscene you'll accept the claim so they showed the movie for the judge and jury and they all loved it so it's like, <laughs> <laughs> so ended up like you know they would beat the ruling and the movie got unbanned and then like that kind of paved the way for a lot of people <laughs> <sighs> Bruce Campbell changes lives. I mean, that's just yeah. a fact. <laughs> I was fascinated recently when I saw something that there's currently in production a remake or reboot or something of Faces of Death from Legendary Studios, the, the people who did Godzilla and The Dark Knight, yeah. which I... is utterly bizarre. And, you know, I mean, Faces of Death is a noted video nasty. I mean, the yeah. article about the remake in Entertainment Weekly actually pulled out that it was on the nasties list. And it was one that was banned here in the States too. Yeah, I mean, that that one for me is like, I mean, I'm generally like a big defender and like freedom of expression and what have you, like, you know, and I do, I will argue for its right to exist, but that was one that kind of pushed on us, but even I had no interest in watching it. Like, you know, essentially it's like, for those who don't know, Face of, Faces of Death claims to be a documentary um, that shows like actual like executions and actual deaths by car accidents and actual um animal slaughter. And like, so like, and rally is about, I think it's like 60% staged in a, some archival footage, this video thing. Um, but... Like this obviously caused a massive stir about you shouldn't be showing stuff like this. And to be honest, I don't think many folk would want to watch stuff like this. But um, yeah, like you know, I thought it was, I thought that was one of those things that would vanish in obscurity forever. But no, apparently it has now hit the remake bug. I'm guessing that the new version's not going to be what the old version is. I think the new version is going to be probably staged entirely. Yeah, I mean, they're cast. They they've cast actors who are known properties versus some unknown who claims to be a coroner who narrates the thing. Yeah, and it just makes me think about again. I you know I worked at a video store for a summer, and there I watched horror movies all summer. But there were the faces. That's like, yeah, not this one. But it, <laughs> it's fascinating to me that it's so indicative of how sort of sanitized and corporate everything has so many things have become yeah. because you can take what is possibly the most taboo of films and now let's just take that name yeah, and make it's it become ip or i know like capital c content you know like the name the brand name we can use to make some generic horror movie we put like the faces of death ip like on it yeah i just it's it, i saw that and then i started reading the nasty it's like Oh, that's so it's just such a, a dissonance with a point when something like that was banned and now it's like 
we got to do whatever we can to get this thing rated PG-13 so you can bring it to <laughs> yeah, and get as wide an audience as possible. <laughs> Faces of Death Happy Meal toys. <laughs> uh, now, Matt, I got I got to ask, were, were, when you worked at the video store, were you and your dad watching movies together, like in the shop during dead times? Uh, no, no. I mean, we there were rules. You had to. Okay. It had to be PG or or less. <laughs> I don't think my father has been interested in the movie rated PG ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you 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 a big like watch um scary movies with your parents back in the day. No, my my mom is too much of a chicken, and my dad, my dad's more of a a crime movie guy. Like, yeah. My father, gangster movies heists that kind of thing is is my dad's bread and butter so i i was raised on those kind of movies yeah no that makes sense i think i saw a lot of those back in the day as well i think like you know robocop i remember if you want to have earliest favorite movies you know (laughs) But, but like yeah no i think it's quite funny to think about though like in terms of like i think either to be horror or either to be like you know violent crime or gangsters it's quite funny how like you know things only feel is like forbidden as they are made to be like if it's just something that's around or that you can watch you don't see it as this big deal or this big scary thing and that was part of like you know why like you know horror was kind of accessible to me is because I was always like allowed to watch it like you know and that's so never felt scary <laughs> I think probably if, it's, if someone had said oh you can't watch this it's really bad like that would have made me more scared of it um but I think also as well like and I remember like um like is that, there's actually a version of this scene that pops up in the nasty issue four. Um, it was, it was just drawn from real life, but I remember when I first watched um Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and again, I would have been really young, I would have been like four years, four or five years old when I first saw the, the sequels, like the Dream Warriors and like you know <laughs> the Dream Master the ones, which were more funny. Um, but I think rather than my mum saying like you can't watch these movies, she let me watch the movie. And then she put on V on the TV and said, you know, see that guy playing the alien there? That's Robert England. That's the actor that plays Freddy Krueger. Like, you know, and then likes to let, you know, then so right away, like, you're knowing it's an actor that's all pretend and just feels like another movie in that sense. I think, so I think that was quite a good response for way of handling it. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, you've written a whole bunch of essays on this subject for, for Vault heading into this series and, and I think it's Back Matter as well was this like a research intensive project for you or had you uh, you know you know a lot of this backstory already going in i think it was a bit of both um like i knew a lot of it going in um just through like you know already being interested in the topic and reading up on it and just like cultural osmosis of being like a kid in like the 1990s um mm-hmm. even, even in this dying days like the video the, the, the embers of the video nasties panic were still around back then like i remember a big furore around child's play three when i was like you know mm-hmm. a young kid like you know and i remember like the, the days when the exorcist and like texas chainsaw massacre were allowed to air on british tv for the first time ever like you know and i was like i could remember watching them thinking i'm witnessing history um so i was always something that was part of like my life but there was some research involved as well whether that be like reading up on the video nasties, studying them, like reef, you know, like digging up though that old documentary so I could rewatch it and study and take notes and read articles, or just watching the actual video nasties or rewatching them. Like, you know, I've seen like the majority of them now. And like my routine at night would be because I went through a period where I was trying to watch as many of them as I could. So my like my routine at night would be that 
after I'd finished my day's writing, like to unwind at night, I would like do some yoga as I normally do. And while the yoga was, while I was doing yoga, I'd have like a video nasty playing on the TV, <laughs> so that I could like, so that I could like, you know, like watch it and multitask. And was so that's that, so that, for me, that's like my soothing, like you know, combo, like my relaxation combo is like yoga and a slasher, you know, and that's that's me ready for bed. <laughs> Nothing, nothing is better for 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 meditation than Wilhelm screams. Yeah, <laughs> just chainsaw sounds and like meat kind of like getting grinded. Ah, uh, now back into downward facing dog. Um, <laughs> have you ever seen the Evil Dead musical? No, I've not. Um, I've heard of it, obviously, Cabin in the Woods, but no, I've never seen it. Was it good? Uh, it was. I went to see it as an off Broadway show. This is back in, God winter 2007 wow. i want to say i was in new york for a few days and uh i don't even know how we like got wind of it but we we bought tickets and and you know there's it had a splash zone like like a gallagher show um, <laughs> there was a musical number called that, that was expressly called what the fuck was that uh it was it was a good time it was a good time <laughs> maybe we should maybe we should adapt that for the screen <laughs> But, uh, you know, I just I want to take a second. I wanted to read the names of some of these movies on the video nasty list because they are just so uh, evocative uh, and incredible. So we've got uh, this isn't the this is just a few choice selections here. We've got the Beast in Heat. Blood Feast. (laughs) That that was one of the Nazi exploitation movies, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Blood Rights, Cannibal Apocalypse and Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. The Driller Killer. Faces of Death, as we've mentioned. Flesh for Funny, funny enough, the John Kelly I should mention just to cut you off. Like, yeah, I'm no. Sorry. All good, um, all good. As, weirdly enough, um, I wasn't the biggest fan of John Kelly. I thought, like, you know, it was pretty boring. Um, and mm. weirdly enough, the director agrees with me. Um, like, he, like, has kind of, like, said that he thinks the movie was trash. And I can't, and for, I should remember this director's name. He's a really famous director, and I forgot his name now. That's terrible. Um, someone bring it up for me. I'm looking up on Letterboxd. Looking it up as we speak. Um... <laughs> Abel Ferreira, aye. Mm. Um, and so yeah, like he's like kind of disavowed it a little bit. And like the, one of my favorite movie quotes we came from him about this movie, which um he said, If I paid to see a movie called The Driller Killer and this was it, I would punch the director in the fucking head. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's like, you know, and although it is like the, the, the title is evocative and the cover poster of the guy getting drilled is like super evocative, but yeah, sadly the movie was a lot of time. So I'll let you go back to your titles now. No, so. it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Flesh for Frankenstein, uh, Gestapo's Last Orgy. Uh, Not I seen sp- that one, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, I Spit on Your Grave, Night of that? the Bloody Apes. Uh, yeah, the werewolf one of the earliest ones actually has a lot. It has a whole wrestling subplot, which I really enjoy. Oh, oh wow, okay. Uh, the werewolf and the yeti, and then uh, <laughs> zombie flesh eaters. Yep, zombie flesh eaters slash zombie slash um, what's the other name for it? Um, do, do, do. zombie two. That was another one. It was called because it's because like Dawn of the Dead in Italy was called Zombie as a Z O M B I. Um, and then just build this as a sequel to it, even though I had nothing to do with it, called The Zombie 2. Um, but yeah, that's a really good movie. Um, that's by Lucio Fulci, um, who's done a, his, has a few entries in the video nasties list, as it turns out. This is his <laughs> most famous. It has a zombie versus shark fight scene. And um, I, one of the all, and for being like a, tr- a largely trashy movie, it has one of the all time greatest staged 
like death scenes ever in a horror movie with um this woman who's like blocking a door and like the zombies fist punches through the door and it leaves a big splinter and it's like pulling her head slowly slowly towards it and you can see it's going towards her eye and it's back and forth and back and forth and it takes ages and eventually you see in slow motions it pierces the eyeball and goes in right up to like the hill and like that was the shot they got the movie put on the video nasties list because like it's <laughs> genuinely horrific um but yeah good movie <laughs> <laughs> lots of fun for all the family it's fascinating that, you know, so many of these are kind of lost, but then there's the ones that have this larger life in horror culture, uh, kind of a Holocaust and I spit on your grave are yeah. still movies that make lists of maybe not of most disturbing horror movies of all time, but yeah. so many of the rest of these are kind of forgotten. Yes, kind of forgotten, but here's something that they're, they're more remembered than they would have been. This is something that I think is like history's great revenge on Mary Whitehouse is that if she hadn't made this list, they hadn't pushed to get this list made, and like the government hadn't put together a video recordings act and put together a video nasties list, a lot of these would have just been like kind of schlocky, cheap movies that were forgotten by history. But because of like that whole moral panic, these movies are forever enshrined in a canon and for then for the subsequent decades, and I'm sure for many decades to follow, people, horror fans, have sought out these movies so that they could watch them all and say, I've seen all the video nasties. And so thanks to Mary Whitehouse, what would have just been movies that we've forgotten about now live forever. So thanks, Mary. <laughs> Done us all a service. <laughs> <laughs> we saw you. Now, now here's a question. Uh, which would you rather watch if you could only watch one of these for the rest of your life? The video nasties list in its entirety. Or the AFI top 100 films? Hmm. Um, as much as I love video nasties, um, I think I'd probably have to go for the AFI top 100 films. <laughs> I mean, like, like the video nasties, there are some great movies in there, but there's also a lot of shit. So <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think I would have, like, you know, a, a richer selection of enjoyable movies in that AFI top 100. I'd have to take a look again because depending on how much crap's in there, I might change my mind. But <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, right now, I'll tend to say the AFI list. So uh, you you grew up in the '90s, as we mentioned. At this point, like, what was the video store scene like? Were we still in the mom and pop phase, or I don't know if Blockbuster was as big a thing. It you know, wasn't okay. as big a thing in the UK like as it was in the US. I think it started to come in later on, you know. But there was like. It literally also another going Main Street a little bit further down the road. There was a global video, which was okay. a bigger chain. It was, it was a chain store, but even then it was like wasn't like a massive conglomerate. It was like just like several chains across the UK or maybe just through Scotland. But my video shop was um as I say, Video World, which was again like a really small, like sort of mom and pop like little place that had like you know it was like a, just like a tiny little space and it had like a popcorn machine which i remember <laughs> weird enough. and then there was also like azad video which was like up in burnside and that was an even smaller place than video world it just like it was like a like a, like a little cubicle essentially like with blank cassettes um i always fondly remember azad video because that was how i saw from dust to dawn went to azad video and they gave me a blank cassette i knew nothing about the movie they just said get this movie it's really good so like I had no idea vampires were in that movie until like they really showed up like about an hour in, which is the best way to watch that movie. Um, but yeah, no, so like that's so, like obviously like in my lifetime, like the nineteen nineties video shots were still going strong. Um, but like 
in my you know, I could see by the two thousands, like you could see things turning, you could see like stuff like attendance to declining, you could see more like offers and desperate kind of like things to try and get people back again. Like they were they started leaning more heavily on games and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, no, like I think once DVDs became popularized and videos became super cheap, and I could go to like it was a while where I could go to HMV in Glasgow City Centre and I could like buy like four videos or VHSs for ten pounds. And if I can do that and buy them and have them to keep, then like you know why would I want to go and rent a video? You know, like it's mm-hmm. and that was kind of thing of what did the market in sadly. So given given this book's uh, predilection for for gore. Uh, I I was curious whether the character of Red Ennis was uh, named for Garth. <laughs> Funny enough, no. <laughs> like I think I started off with like the word red because well actually what I started off with was when I was trying to find the slasher. Um, I mean I had that was something that kind of like was in my head quite early on for this story that I wanted the main character to have like a slasher imaginary friend. I never had that imaginary friend as a little kid, but I do remember having many a daydream thinking like how cool it would be if Michael Myers was my pal. So like I wanted to like, you know, do something like that. Um, but so yeah, I had this idea of like, you know, ever since he was a young kid, he's had this big slasher that's followed him around. I mean, his imagine imaginary friend that he still has as a teenager. So I started, so that was the idea. And I thought, well, what's the slasher going to be? And I thought, like, what movies is it going to be in? So then I thought Labor Day, purely because it's just about the only national holiday that's not had a slasher movie made about it. So <laughs> like, you know, I came up with Labor Day. And after coming up with Labor Day, I was like, okay, well, who's the slasher going to be for Labor Day? What kind of theme could we have? And I was thinking like Labor, Worker. So then I thought like, maybe some kind of like mad socialist totem, like, you know, the working man. So that was where the red came from. So the red was the first thing. And I was just thinking like, what are good names that match with like red, like something two syllables? And I just thought Ennis. And then that was like where the name came. Now, one of the things that I always like to to talk to about creators who are doing horror is how they blend humor with horror. Because there's a panel in issue two, and uh, uh, there's not much of a spoiler here for those of you who really are are spoiler phobic, uh, where Thumper is talking to to an actor on while the guy's on stage, and imaginary Red Ennis is standing behind him holding a prop tree. Just silently and holy, and it, this there was something about this panel that absolutely killed me. And I'm just curious. First, was that in the script? And two, where? How do you find the importance of of breaking the tension of terror with a bit of a laugh in a script? Because I mean, we've talked about Evil Dead, and that's one of the things that is yeah. foundational to Evil Dead. Yeah, I mean, well, first off, with that particular scene, I'm not was in the script thing like i always tried to make an effort like if red ennis is there i tried to always have him doing some kind of business like you know whether it be like you know like playing with the scenery or like looking at our character because i thought it would be better to do that just how you can have like you know and red ennis is there so i tried to work with business and that specific scene um i say when i mentioned like he's holding a tree if you look closely i think i, I said has that has an easter egg i said to george to draw it so that the pad, the little mark on the tree is the mark that's left in the tree in Friday the Thirteenth Part Six. Jason lives when the guy like gets thrown face first into the tree, like you know, and it breaks off. So like, if you look, it is the same tree from like that movie that he's holding. Um, but yeah, like, um, in terms of like horror and comedy, I think that, I think I'm not sure if I've told I've said this to you before, but I think those two genres are like very closely linked. 
Um, I think that they all they both operate on like this heightened emotional plane, like you know where things don't quite go the way they would in the real world because you're trying to evoke an emotional response. And like for example, like you know if you're talking about like horror and the setup of horror, like a lot of it's like you know a lot of suspense and like building up a scene. And a lot of uncertainty. <laughs> and like, you know, there's a big, like, you know, show, you know. And like, the first thing that happens, like, you know, when you get a fright is you laugh, but you both laugh there, like, after that. Like, you know, it's like a release of tension. And, like, so for me, it's like, it's like, it's like a, a good scare in a horror movie is like set up expectations, subvert expectations, and have a payoff, which is the same thing for a joke. And like you mentioned, Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2 is like the platonic ideal of like, horror being scary and also funny because you're setting up your comedy like a scare and you're setting up like your horror like a joke like so much of evil dead 2 is like a character a is looking towards point b and they're waiting for something to happen and something just appears out of point c instead like you know it's a, it's a joke set up and for me that's why i think sometimes the best horror it's like one degree removed from being hilarious and the best comedy is like one degree off of being terrifying because they both exist in that kind of similar space. And like, for me, like, they're even more closely related because like, I associate like horror and being scared with like, you know, cozy memories like of childhood and stuff. So it has that emotional connection for me and I was trying to convey that fondness in the script as well. Like, you know, and I think like for me, whether you're writing horror or whether you're writing comedy, I think one of the biggest secrets to have of making of doing it well, or what I hope is well, is um you start from character and you make people care about the characters before you do anything else. And then if they care about the characters and they're emotionally invested in the characters and those characters feel real, then they will laugh when the, those characters are put in situations that are funny and they will feel scared when those characters are put in peril. So I think, like, you know, and then, like, and sometimes you can do both in the same story. <laughs> so that's what I, that was my kind of, like, starting point. I, I like Evil Dead 2 as the example of that because that was still, you know, I'm going to use the phrase guerrilla filmmaking, but what I what I mean is, like, we talked about like Nightmare on Elm Street three right earlier, yeah. and like Child's Play has come up. Those are very much horror franchises working under the studio system. So a yeah. lot of the humor in those movies are just sort of they soften the edges of of the slashers yeah. at that I mean, point to the make them more palatable to a mass audience. It's yeah. like between Evil Dead two and Army of Darkness. But Army of Darkness was also done through a bigger studio, and it was like I had more of a budget to it. I love Army of Darkness as well. I think it's a really good movie, but mm. I think Evil Dead 2 does that balance between comedy and horror better because the comedy in Evil Dead 2 is just really horrible things happening to Bruce Campbell, who plays it with a largely straight face and acts like he's being he's genuinely horrified as like the slapstick routines are being inflicted upon him. And it's hilarious because like it doesn't need to say it's a comedy. With Army of Darkness, they obviously have more notes and stuff and they have like you know more expectations to meet. So when the comedy stuff happens in Army of Darkness, there's lots of like like you know sound effects like boing you know and like in like in Bruce Campbell's mugging to the camera and saying one liners. So it's like it's telling you this is funny, this is a joke that you have to laugh at. And when someone tells you something's funny, it makes it less funny, I think. so. This comic is is replete with all these, you know, posters for, for fake movies, you know, the kind of thing <laughs> you would see in a, in a video shop. Uh, you know, and I know 
Adam came into the book kind of designing a lot of those posters. Do you have a, a favorite fake movie poster uh, from the shop, non-Labor Day? Yeah, because first I should say that Labor Day, I came up with the whole series. There's Labor Day, there's Labor Day 2 the next September, Labor Day 3, Blade of the Proletariat, Labor Day 4, Guts Parade, Labor Day 5, the final chapter, Labor Day 6, the resurrection of Red Ennis, Labor Day 7, Red Ennis takes the Hoover Dam, and Labor Labor Day 8, the new final chapter. (laughs) But... the in terms of like non Labor Day titles, um, uh, my favorite one, um, both in terms of the title and the poster, is probably Pervert Bigfoot, um, yes. <laughs> like because one, like the the name just made me laugh when I first came up with it. So much so that I then went back and worked in a whole like monologue that Mira gives an issue too about Pervert Bigfoot. Then the poster that um, Adam drew is just like a really great cinematic movie poster with this Bigfoot hand that's reaching out towards a woman's ass as she's like, you know, you know. And so I think like it's the perfect combination of like what what is comics if not a marriage of words and image and that was like a um a, a close second would probably be butt munchers um which was um like the the poster that Adam drew for that this was like a bit like great kind of like you know creative collaboration when I just wrote the title no explanation just wrote butt munchers and then Adam based on me writing butt munchers drew um this poster with like this ass it's got. A, set of teeth like you know so i was thinking it was like maybe cannibals that were eating people's butts but like you know he drew like this it's an actual ass to these people that has these <laughs> teeth so then based on seeing that poster i then wrote the tagline sometimes you eat ass and sometimes ass eats you <laughs> like, <but laughs> so that was like, a wonderful like creative collaboration between me and adam on bringing that to life What are the reactions you're getting from Adrian? <laughs> when he's seeing these things? I mean, to, to be fair, I'm, the reason I know that I'm in a good environment is most of the reactions are just Adrian cackling and saying more and more. So, <laughs> you know, I think, like, you know, I know we're in a good environment that we're going to be trusted to be ourselves. Oh, God. Uh, you know, and because that, that was the thing I was curious about, like how in the weeds you guys got to- kind of talking about these things that are effectively, you know, set dressing their their background, but they're so God, they, they, they deepen the world so much. Yeah, I think like that's the key thing. We wanted to be, you know, we didn't want it just to be generic. We wanted it to feel like this could be a world that. Like you could walk into Monster Dome and you could like point to any poster and there's a story behind that poster, there's a story behind that movie. Um and like even if that world is never actually overtly shared with the reader, like, you know, if they have to just imagine it, I think if we put the thought into that and said, okay, we know about this world and we know all these ideas, then it'll make what we do right feel more real and more authentic because we put that thought into it. Uh and then I just want to point it out quickly. Uh, you know, you had done an interview where you compared this series to the Eddie Murphy, Steve Martin movie, Bowfinger. And I classic. I love that movie. Okay. Thank you for saying that. Uh, I wanted to call that one out specifically because Matt and I saw that movie in the theater when it came out, and I feel like it was un- underappreciated in its time. Oh no, like, I I loved it this time. I remember like back in the day, the very first DVD that I bought was The Faculty. Um, and then after that, I had like I think two other movies in DVD. It was um The Faculty, Three Kings, and Bowfinger. So I just watched like these movies on like constant rotation for a little while. Um, so yeah, I have a very great fondness for Bowfinger. Wow, that is the year two thousand in a nutshell, <laughs> right there. <laughs> uh, 
So uh, I, I was curious, you know, we mentioned, you know, Adam came in to do the, the movie designs and you had George on art for the first couple of issues. And then Adam takes over with issue three. Uh, how did you navigate the the switch in artists, uh, not mid-series, but, you know, partway through? Yeah, obviously it's a bit of a difficult transition you have to make. Like, you know, when you know, one artist steps out and that steps in. But um, obviously, like, you know, George, after he'd done the first two issues, had to leave to focus on other projects. Mm-hmm. And that could have been a difficult position if we had to kind of, like, go back to square one and, like, you know, try to find a new artist, you know. <laughs> but thankfully, Adam was already on board. Adam had already, like, by that point, um, we brought him in. Because like, originally, like, when George, like, sent us, like, the artwork for issue one, and he drew like monster dome video like it looked good like you know we had like you know the kind of like layout of the place but it was just like a lot of like blank cassettes and stuff so we brought adam in to like fill that world out like and you know and add like the so he was already in the process of doing that i'd become familiar with the characters and was the, the red descriptions familiar with the world so thankfully when we then needed the new artist to come on it was a very easy transition to like bring adam in like you know when adam is already like you know making fixes and like you know making adjustments to the first two issues he was already like familiar with it all so then thankfully like you know i think like george had left the book i think maybe i want to say mid-december um and like you know like and we already before and before christmas like we already had like you know had him on board and stuff so thankfully it was a, well, it could have been a very stressful holiday period it was made very easy and like you know and adam's just slipped right in like you know it's been totally seamless like you know obviously it could be it could have been difficult if you've had there's been a book that's been in development for some time there's been issues drawn and there's a new person coming into the mix but adam slipped right in he like was really involved like you know and had ideas and like one of the challenges I think Adam had was when he was first sending his pages, he was sending his stuff that like was good, but I felt like he was really trying hard to be consistent with George, you know, and like trying drawing like rather than drawing his own style, he was like drawing like his version of like George's style. So I'd said to him, like, you know, Adam, like, don't feel you need to like, you know, ape George because like you're not George, you're your own artist, your own man, like, you know, and if you're trying to draw like George, it's just gonna look like someone who's doing George but not as well like you know so you as well like leaning into it and doing your own style which he did and like I think like you know it's I think it's really great I think like tonally and spiritually it feels consistent with what George did in terms of like the kind of the lightness of it and the kind of energy but he's brought his own flavour to it like it's his own versions of those characters and he's, he's, he's added in his own jokes and things and his own visual gags and I think he's really taken the spirit of it where like you know he'll most days most weeks i'd say at least I'm, I'm getting a message from adam with um i had this idea what do you think if we did this you know what should we do here like you know sending me like little panels sending me like you know like ideas he has and that's what i really enjoy like working with people like you know when it feels like they're really involved and like invested in the process and it's been a pleasure working with them and you know i think like even though he's not, he is involved in issue one, he has some elements in it, but he's not the principal artist until issue three, but even so, he has been championing this book and beating the drum and doing the promo for it as if it was his, and I think, like, you know, that's what I want, I want, like, you know, a part, you know, like an artist who feels like a partner and who's, like, emotionally invested and has made it their story as well, and that's what Adam's done, so I'm very happy to be working with him on the book. That's great. Now, after doing this series, and, and, and you know, now you're doing press for it, are you just constantly recommending movies to people? That yeah. just comes um, up in conversation. That, that, that's what I that's like. If somebody could pay me to make that my job, then like I'd be happy to do it because I love recommending people, movies to people. Like, I love, like, to be honest, like, if someone comes back to me um, and says, oh, I read your comic and it was great, that makes me happy, obviously. But if they say, I read 
20th century boys by now Kurosawa because I heard you talk about it in a podcast and it was great <laughs> that makes me even happy I like you know so yeah I'm halfway talking about movies and the recommendations hey, should people be following you on Letterboxd <laughs> yes they should um Letterboxd is like the platonic like ideal of like a social media platform which is you write everything you want you get zero engagement um I can't maybe like a year after like you know you've written a review you'll get one comment saying good review and then you go thanks uh you know so it's like a great ego it's like a great ego killer because essentially it takes away that like dopamine hit of like you know posting something to get engagement to get likes and to get replies and instead you're posting it just to post it because like you know you want to write something and for me like i've written a review on Letterboxd for every single movie I have watched since 2013. So that's like a decade now. Um, so like there's a library of like thousands of movie reviews by this point and, and on my you know like account that you can find. Uh, it's great. It's like Twitter, but except you can tell everybody what you think about John Wick 4 and nobody can talk back. <laughs> <laughs> that's all just nice things, doesn't worry. Ah oh, boy. So uh, this isn't the only thing that you have going on right now. You know, you just wrapped a Kickstarter for the latest installment of your crime horror series, uh, Sync, with Alex Cormack through Comics Tribe. Um, how are you with Kickstarters at this point? You know, are you an old hand at this with Nerves of Steel, or are you a constant page refresher in those early days of the campaign? Well, I mean, it's very easy for me to go, oh, yeah, it's great, it's fine, because, like, I'm not really doing it, you know, like, I'm doing, like, a lot of the PR, and I'm doing lots of, like, you mm-hmm. know, I'm writing the book, obviously, but in terms of the actual, like, nuts and bolts of handling the page and, like, doing fulfillment and all that, that's on, like, Comics Tribe and Tyler, so he's doing, like, much of the work that I get credit for, you know, <laughs> which I don't mind, you know? <laughs> but, um, but, like, you know, but having said that, even though, like, you know, it's Tyler that's running the, the page and, like, you know, and doing all that stuff, it is still nerve-wracking. Like, I am a page refresher. Like, I'm, like, really, like, you know, because every single time you do a camera, how many successful campaigns we've had, I always feel like this is good. There's, like, some part of my brain that's like, this is going to be the one where nobody cares anymore. Like, we're going to launch it. It's going to be crickets. You know, you don't get that anxiety out of your head. Like, you know, so it's always very nice and gratifying when then we launch and there's, like, a it's like massive. It's usually be funding day one, like, you know, and it's always great to see that, like, level of demand and level of, like, support and patience from like our, our backers so yeah it's really cool to know that we still got that following there it's really gratifying and uh i just gotta say i love that there was a a custom mr dig uh minifig that was one of the add-ons yeah, like that you know that was like a back by popular demand there was like a version of that um like in a previous campaign i've got a lot of mr dig lego on my desk um up the stairs not here um but the yeah, like in fact, in the next campaign, there's like talk of doing like a Mr. Dig plushie doll, you know, which would be like a dream come true for me if you had that. Um, but yeah, and I think it's really great for me because like I do love how even as I do other things, even as I go on to like, like hotel or I go on to like, like you know, um, the nasty or all these other things that people still keep on discovering Sync. Um, like, I'll write something for a new publisher and they'll go back and go, well, I'll check Sync out. So even though it's, like, something that I thought, like, you know, it's this weird personal story. It's, like, my lovely out to Glasgow. Um, it's kind of, like, odd in a lot of places. not necessarily marketable. I know that because, like, every publisher turned it down because it wasn't marketable. You know, so it's nice, like, you know, that 
it keeps on finding an audience. It keeps on growing. People keep on going back to it. And obviously, we did Volume 1, and that came out in 2017, 2018. We did Volume 2, which came out 2018, 2019. The plan had been for me and Alex Cormack, the artist, to then take a year off and spend 2020 doing The Crimson Cage, which was our kind of wrestling retelling mm-hmm. of Macbeth um, from a while back. Um, but... Um, then the pandemic happened, so that got pushed back from 2020 to the end of 2021 and 2022, mm-hmm. and then that then, as a result, rolled back since. So now it's like 2023 before this volume three is finally coming out. Um, but as I say, the, the audience has never left, like, we've we picked up new readers, if anything, since then. So the anticipation seems to be at a fever pitch. And the plan is going to be for this volume, we're going to do three Kickstarter campaigns over the course of this year. We've just did the first one. We're just going to collect a special Kickstarter exclusive deluxe edition of Sync 11 plus a load of Batmatter. Um, then we're going to do in the summer um, a campaign for a special Kickstarter deluxe edition of issues 12 and 13. Then we're going to do a third Kickstarter in fall or the autumn, I should say. I'm becoming American saying fall. Um, but and, you know, we're going to do a third campaign collecting issues 14 and 15. And after all three of those campaigns have run, in the latter part of the year in the winter, we're then going to like go to the direct market and do like single issue releases of 11 through 15 monthly. Um, so we're going to be serving both our direct market audiences and our Kickstarter audiences, which are both good audiences. Um, so like yeah, like the direct market is the direct market's done well for us, but Kickstarter, the audience has been so passionate. We wanted to do something that rewarded them as well and give them something you know specific to them that rewarded that platform and put to that platform strength. So hopefully everyone will be happy by the end of the year. Between between sync and the nasty, you know, you've turned Scotland into a horror filled place. Um, <laughs> which which comic though do you think has a thicker accent? Oh God. Um <laughs> Well, first off, I'll say yeah, I'm quite proud of the fact that I've used Scotland as this kind of like I, I've been talking, I want to make like a horror map of Scotland, like you know, like being with Mercy and the Orkney Islands and like you know, Sink and Glasgow and Rutherland, which is an actual place, and just like have all these like, like roadmaps of all these hot monstrosities that are happening there. But yeah, in terms of like a comic with a thicker accent, to be honest, like this is gonna be I think like the I remember reading 100 bullets back at the time when that first came out and thinking like the dialect and this is really dense, like you know, and I'm from Glasgow, so like I think that maybe I could shout for a comic that has like a big, you know, like major accent. Well, uh penultimate question, what are you reading right now? Oh, I always hate this question because I always think I'm gonna forget something that's really good. <laughs> uh, um Oh, that Texas Blood was my favourite comic of 2022. Um, I'm really excited for that to come back. I think it's a really cool book. I think it started off as a kind of like good, um, kind of like criminal style, like Brubaker Phillips style, like noir. But as it's gone on, it's found its own voice. It's became something kind of like strange and mythic, and that's great. Um, I love Do a Power Bomb. Um, and that came out. That was great. Um. Mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying Breath of Shadows. I'm a little bit biased because it's by Alex Cormack, who does sync, but I love his parents with Rich Duick. Um, all of their historical horrors. Um, I think, I think this is the best one he's done yet. I've read the scripts for it because I'm part of a writing group with Rich, you know, so I know where the, I know where it's going. Um, but I think this is the best of the three. It's the most accomplished, it's the most character driven, and Alex is really kind of like raising his game um in the art side of things. Um and Godfell, um, also an, like another vault book that's mm-hmm. really good fantasy. Um, Christopher Seville, Ben Hennessy, I think the world building that's been really impressive. Um, I think when Monsters Lie from Dark Horse, like you know, was, was a really good couple first couple of issues. I'm really impressed with that. 
so yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff like you know, that I'm coming out that I've been really enjoying. As I say, I'm sure after I've done this call, I'll remember something else I should have said. But <laughs> I'm, those are the first ones that jumped to my head. It's a, it's a good list. It's a good list. But uh, you know, John, this has been a fantastic hour. Final question as we release you back into the world. Uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with uh, everything you have going on? Apart from my letterboxd account. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, um, you can find me. My newsletter is deepender.johnleescomics.com. That's deep-ender.johnleescomics.com. There, I if you sign up to that, you'll get an essay in your inbox every week. I am quite proud that I was doing newsletters before they were cool. I've been writing one like since January 2017, and I've never missed a week. Um, every Friday you will get something in your inbox. And that includes, like, you know, as I said, an original essay every week, plus, like, the latest news from me, like, little previews of upcoming stuff, like, the you know, latest developments, my various thoughts on pop culture, movies, comics, etc. Um, my Patreon page is patreon.com forward slash John Lee's. And for a variety of, like, tiers there, you'll be able to get an original prose story from me each month. You'll get um behind-the-scenes process stuff, like page-by-page breakdowns and commentary of my comics. I'm currently running through and then Emily was gone, but I've done 10 issues worth of sync in the past as well. And I also have, like, I share old scripts and I do like, reviews and talk about the process of those. I share a bunch of other content, so check that out if you like my stuff. And on social media, you can find me on Twitter at John Lee's nine two seven. You can find me on Instagram at John Lee's nine two seven. Um, I think I've joined Hive. Like, does anyone still use Hive? Like, was that we have the week of everyone using that and they gave up? But I'm on that at John Lee's. Um, so you can find me there. And my online shop, if you want to pick up some of the books we've been talking about, is John Lee's Comics International shipping is a bit steep, but um, I do as best I can. <laughs> All right, John. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure chatting horror with you guys. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a Pete Wisdom Hot Claws sticker designed by Kevin Newburn. A $3 donation gets you access to our bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $4 donation gets you access to Our Son Pete and the sticker, a $25 donation lets you plug your crowdfunded or creator-owned comic in a 60-second spot, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis, Robert Secundus, Liz Large, and Will Nevin from ComicsXF, Carla Pacheco, Mike Sagawa, and Azabah Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF, assuming Twitter still works. And until next week, remember, somewhere out there, there's a Batman comic where all the characters simply cannot stop saying the word boner. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.